This is the Hockey News Storytellers Podcast with Ian Paul. Welcome to the Hockey News Storytellers. This episode's guest is Brian Lawton. When you hear Brian Lawton's name, most listeners south of the border know him from the NHL Network. But to really know Brian Lawton, you need to trace his career back over five decades in the sport. As a player, as an agent, as a general manager, and now a broadcaster, commentator, and expert in all things hockey, especially in including the business of hockey. I like to say that in the hockey world, there are a lot of critics and experts who think they know, but they don't know because they have not done it. Brian Lawton is a person who has done it. He has played at the highest level against the best players in the world. He built a player agency business into a powerhouse. He sat in a general manager's chair and made critical decisions for an NHL team. And finally, he tells stories most every night during the season on the NHL Network. Brian, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure to be here, Ian, and of course, uh, just to see you in general. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Uh, up here in Toronto, still locked up and, um, you know, uh, waiting, waiting until the shackles come off and we can return to normalcy up here. I know down there, it's a little bit different. Thank you very much, because that was incredible, that introduction. But, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, well-deserved. I've known you for a long time, and um, not many people can say they've sat in so many chairs or put on so many hats in this business. Really, if you think about it, Brian, I don't know. Maybe you have, maybe you know the person, but player, agent, GM, broadcaster, I'm not sure anybody else checks those four boxes. I don't know anybody per se. I mean, Berkey obviously was a general manager and agent. He did play um, for the Philadelphia Flyers minor league team as well. Of course, he's gone back and he's the president of the Pittsburgh Penguins now. So after that, I really can't think of too many other guys. There's been a number of people that were agents and general managers, Dean Lombardi, yeah. Pierre Lacroix, of course, uh, Michael right. Barnett, a couple of guys right yeah. off the tip of my tongue. But uh, not very many that have kind of um, been involved in the different factors or factions that I have been in the NHL. And I don't know, it does give me uh, some perspective. It really helps me in my job with NHL Network because it allows me to cover a lot of different things, whether it's the draft or an expansion draft or trade deadline day or free agency day. I seem to end up working all those days for NHL Network and I really enjoy that. Yeah, and, and it really gives the listeners some good uh, perspective on a contract negotiation, on a player who's injured, who's about to come back, dif different dynamics, you've been through them. Um, but think about it, the 80s, the 90s, 2000s, 10, 20, and now 20 to 30, five decades, I mean, we're the same age, it makes you feel old, but you know, I guess the question for you is, you're known to have great enthusiasm. We aren't that old, but it makes you feel old. You have such great enthusiasm and passion for the game. How do you keep it up? Uh, you know what? For me, bringing energy every day is important, and I think that's important in my job currently. But uh, overall, I'm a little bit of a health nut. Uh, I try to take good care of myself. Uh, I'm super structured in what I eat every day, what kind of food I eat, everything I do is about trying to be healthy in order to maintain energy to enjoy life. And it's a very simple philosophy. It's nothing new for the listeners out there, but I'm serious about it. I've always taken it serious. And uh, it, is, as it definitely has helped me to, uh, to keep up that energy on a constant level. Good for you. And so let's talk just quickly about the game. You played the game in the 80s. You were in the Gretzky era. Um, the running gun era of the 80s with some extracurricular activities. And so just focus for a minute 
on the game and how much it's changed or not changed. Is it still the same game when you watch it, you know, every night and, and distill it down or has it dramatically changed through the different decades and is it getting better or what do you think of the game? Well, first off, the game has never been in a better place. And if I could pick an era to play in, I would pick this era right now. Not that I didn't enjoy starting in the eighties, I started in 1983, was my first season in the NHL as an 18-year-old. And the thing that stuck out to me that particular year is there were three bench-clearing brawls. Right. And I, I mean, three brawls were just, you know, if you, for all you listeners out there, you think you're tough, you're confident you're a tough person, go into a bench-clearing brawl. You can fight as long as you want. There'll be nobody to break it up in front of about 18,000 people. Coming out of high school hockey, that was very bizarre to me. I think the game has progressed since then, though, and that's why I love it. There's more focus on the actual game of hockey. There's more focus on the skill that these guys have. And when you see it on a nightly basis, uh, I got to tell you, I watch almost every single Edmonton Oilers game because a guy like Connor McDavid is just so interesting to me. He's at such another level compared to most of the other players in the league that I literally watch every single game of their team that I can. And you hear the great Jack Michaels call the game. Jack was a guest uh, on the podcast earlier love, on. and Love the job he does. Yeah, Captain awesome. Jack. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, so, and go ahead about the game. Go no, ahead. so I was going to say, I think the National Hockey League has really done uh, some really good work, particularly in the last 10, 15 years, not necessarily, you know, coming out of the lockout, and you'll remember this in 04, 05, or coming out of the work stoppage, I'll say, um, there was really a strong move yep. in the direction of zero tolerance on hooking and holding. What that's metamorphosized into, in my opinion, is more zero tolerance on the things that matter even more than hooking and holding. I know we came out of the dead puck era when we transitioned there, but it was dangerous plays, hits to the head. And that's where I've seen a lot of progression for the National Hockey League. And that's why, quite frankly, the game, it just looks really enjoyable. I would love to be a player in today's game. I think I would have played better, number one. But number two, I just would have enjoyed it more. And, and that's important when you're a professional athlete, even though you're making lots of money, you still want to enjoy your job. Is, is there less physicality? Is that one of the reasons and more skill speed the game's open? Or you just think all around the game's more enjoyable because it's a it's a more entertaining game? I, I do. I think there's more focus on hockey. I think we've moved through this era that, you know, this stigma that people had that, well, hockey won't be nearly as exciting if we don't have fighting at a consistent level like they had in the 80s when I played, certainly in the 80s and 90s, but that's not true. People just love the game of hockey because it's an incredibly interesting, fast, exciting game. There's nothing better live. I think that's been proven particularly in the last 10 to 15 years as you see the number of majors come down almost yearly to the point where it almost feels non-existent. Do I think it should be non-existent in hockey? I wouldn't necessarily go that far, but I certainly think that the game is good enough to stand on its own. It's proven that day in and day out. And when you move to international hockey, I think it's even better in some respects. I would be remiss to, to not note that, you know, you first mentioned a lockout and then a work stoppage, and we're not going to debate that. But to me, from my union training, there was either a strike or a lockout, and it should bring you some good chuckles because we're going to talk about the 92 strike in a minute. Um, sure. But it's just my training, and, and it is what it is. But let's go back to your point. You come out of high school hockey, and all of a sudden you're in Minnesota playing in the NHL with men. I mean, like, go back, take us back to that and, like, really, like, was it overwhelming looking back on it? Like, it's pretty incredible. Not, I don't know. Did, is there one other player that went from high school into, did Phil Housley? Or Phil no? Housley did, yes. But Phil we, did. And Phil made it look seamless, to be honest with you, playing for the Buffalo Sabres. He jumped in after his senior year at South St. Paul here in wow. Minnesota, where I live. And uh, he was running the power play his first year. It was incredible watching him 
Tom Barrasso also right. did it. Yeah. And Tom, as a goaltender, that's incredible what he was able to do. And Jeremy Roenick, to some degree, I always throw him in that category because he he went to BC, but he didn't last very long. He ended up turning pro with Chicago very early that year. Okay. He never played a game okay. in college. Right. So essentially, he did the same thing. Right. For me, for me personally. And I guess and, technically uh, these junior kids are doing it too because – I guess to some degree, Tyler Sagan did it too because he went from grade 12 right into the Boston Bruins. But back in the day, uh, you were you maybe the first U.S. player to go from high school right into the NHL? I was actually, I was at, I was actually the third because Bobby okay. Carpenter did it, then okay. Phil Housley did okay. it, and then I did it all in successive years. Right. Uh, for me personally, I found it, I didn't find it overwhelming at the time because I was too stupid to realize that I'm overwhelmed. I was too young. I was too immature. I just didn't get it. But when I look back now, it's clear that there were a lot of things that were overwhelming. Um, you know, I was playing high school hockey against 14, 15, 16, 17 year old kids and then playing you know, seasoned grizzled vets. Uh, the first fight I got in in the National Hockey League I remember I was fighting, Willie Plett was fighting Marty McSorley, the Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pat Boutet came around behind me and kind of jumped me from behind. So I was in this fight. Pat Boutet didn't wear a helmet. So I'm playing in an era where guys don't even wear helmets. Right. Um, I, I fight him. I go sit down in the penalty box. I look over, and I remember seeing his name in the brochure before the program, before the game, because I don't know any of the players. I don't right. know who's who. And I remember when I skimmed over his name thinking, he's pretty close to my dad's age. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm sitting in the belly box going, okay, my first fight was a guy that essentially was my dad's age. I just fought somebody the same age as my dad. Wow. That's really, that's really strange. That is strange. Uh, it, it was a very, very strange feeling. It, it, it truly was. But um, in the end, it just uh, playing a National Hockey League is a real grind. And to play 30-ish games like I did my senior year in high school and then go to, at that time, I believe it was an 80-game schedule, that's a massive shift. Right. And was that one of your, like, welcome to the NHL moments, getting in a fight like that? Were there any other things that stood out playing against Gretzky or some of the other, you know, um, you know the Islanders or anything like that or – a Chicago, Minnesota rivalry or Minnesota, St. Louis? Uh, certainly playing against the Islanders. I, I wouldn't say that I was scared to death, but when I look back at Bobby Nystrom and Clark Gillies and this grizzled season team that they had, and I think about playing them as a rookie, I'm like, what was I thinking? I know Bobby Nystrom now. He's in as good a shape now as he was when he played then. He's just a super good guy. That's his Clark Gillies and Dennis Potvin and her whole team. But uh, I don't know what I was thinking back then playing against those guys. I right. really don't. They, they were just a very physically imposing veteran grizzled group. And, uh, you know, you just did it. Uh, I didn't give it as much thought as I probably should at that time. You just show up and you try to do the best you can do. And uh, sometimes it worked out. Sometimes it didn't. Um, but overall, uh, it was certainly a whirlwind ride and not always a good one. Um, but I, I felt really fortunate to be able to do what I did. And I felt fortunate for the opportunity I had. I felt fortunate to get picked by Minnesota. Never really cared where I got picked. The fact that I was picked first certainly was nice, but that wasn't the be all end all. When you're a kid like that, you just have a dream to maybe one day play in the National Hockey League. And I was happy to be able to realize that dream. So for that player who's sitting around for this coming draft, um, based on what you know as an agent, as a former player, a general manager, what's the message to the young aspiring 16-year-old playing in Rhode Island um, or in Minnesota where you hail from now or, you know, entering the draft? Any good messages to send out to those kids? Um who may be listening or any aspiring, you know, hockey player? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, uh, you know, for me, I went and played when I was essentially 18. I think I was 17 when I was drafted. But by the time I played my first game, I was 18. And just 
don't be in a hurry is the number one thing. This is the best league in the world. You want to build yourself up physically. Um, that was a challenge for me. I was about 177 pounds my first year. I finished that season at 168 pounds. And I used to get the same reaction from everybody I'd see after that season. It's like, what happened to you? Were you sick over the winter? Or I'm like, Bye. no, that's just a grind at the NHL. So for all the young kids out there, have that in mind. There are some kids that you see that, you know, they're physically already men. That's good. And that's certainly an advantage. But you also have the mental side that you want to make sure you're up to snuff on. And for most kids, it's very rare for them to have both of those components, to be physically ready to play with men, but to also be mentally ready to compete uh, in a way that you haven't competed before in your life, to, to have this become a job rather than something you just love doing as a kid. And that transition just takes time to wrap your head around. So that would be my advice to any young player. Don't be in a hurry. You, you don't have a long time to be a professional player, but you really don't have to be playing in the NHL before you're 19, 20, 21, even 22. Yeah, I mean, I have a player named Carter Verhage who, you know, took all these years, two, two stints in the East Coast Hockey League, you know, multiple years in the American League, and at 25 has really coming on into his own and, you know, never kind of gave up that, that you know, um, fight and, and dream of playing in the NHL and got better every year. Um, perfect example. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And Carter's an interesting guy. I mean, obviously in Tampa, he was a little bit blocked out from using his skills. That happens. But in today's world, there's so much opportunity with, you know, so many more teams that we've added. I played in a 21-team league that eventually a guy like Carter Verhage, if you stick with it, you can still make it to the NHL. And I would suggest very confidently that he's going to go on and have really a terrific career. It just took him a while to get there that's okay. He's going to enjoy it when he's there. He's going to make a ton of money and he's going to be a great player for the Florida Panthers and most likely probably someone else in his career. But for right now, uh, he, he unfortunately he's injured, of course, you've right. that. but he looks like uh, he's well on his way to having a real prolific career. So let's dial it back to um, your Minnesota days. And, and I got to ask you a couple questions. So Back in the days in the 80s, what was it like to travel with your team? Um, we see the pictures now every day on Instagram or Twitter, another business trip, and the guys are walking out on their to the, on the tarmac to the private jet waiting for them, um, private entrance, fly the jet, land. They don't touch their gear, suitcases. They drop them off, and so on and so forth. What was it like for an at first an 18 year old to be traveling with the Willie Platts, the Gordy Roberts. Uh, I don't know if Bobby Smith was there, Dino Cicerelli, yep. other guys, like how did it happen? What went down? Like, how did you travel and tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, first of all, it was nothing like you described back then. Uh, the only thing that, you know, was familiar to me having been a hockey player and played on some national teams and things like that is, you know, there's some decent structure, just show up here, the bus will take you, you know, minimum requirements. So that was good. The bad news is when you got to the airport and you're a guy like myself, my rookie year, you're the low man on the totem pole. So you're flying commercial. You might have a flight at some ridiculous time because you got to save money because that was important for the budget for the team. No consideration for health, rest or wellness. <laughs> and, You'd get stuck in the back. It would always happen to be my seat would literally be somewhere between 32 and 47, row four, 32 or row right. 47. And what was really penal about back then that fans won't believe today is that generally meant not only that I had a window in the back of the plane, but I was sitting in the smoking section. <laughs> right. And at 7.30 a.m. after a game in Chicago, I might fly back to Minnesota sitting in row 42E uh, and two gentlemen might be uh, on either side of me smoking. Just lighting up their darts and, and yes. smoking. and Just smoking away and there you'd be sitting in the back and you'd be so tired. You'd be, I literally would sit there some days. I was so exhausted. I'd be like, man, if this plane goes down, 
I might be okay with that right now. I'm so <laughs> exhausted. I don't know if I could, because it wasn't just that you you play Chicago on like a Thursday night. You might get a meal after the game. You get back to your room. You wouldn't sleep a minute. The bus would be literally leaving at 5.30 or 6 a.m. So you haven't slept. You'd get on the bus. You know you'd have a practice when you arrive in Minnesota. So you'd get on the plane. Now there'd be some guys smoking. You still haven't slept, but you're so darn tired you can't believe it. It, it, it was incredibly difficult back then compared and, to how these guys have today. And we're, we're sometimes when you have plane delays and, you know, all 25 of your traveling entourage would just sit around the airport waiting to get called to the gate, just like, you know, you and I would be traveling now, like just Joe Public would be, there'd be a hockey team sitting in the lounge. I mean, that doesn't occur anymore, but back in no. the day... It must it's, have. It's exactly what occurred. You were just John Q. You right. were just like everybody else at the airport, just like all the listeners out there. We had delays, especially when you're playing in Minnesota and the winters are you know, pretty harsh out here and you certainly have a lot of weather delays and things like that. Um, that must you know, be it, good, good memories though. It, you know what it was? It was, it was the same for everybody. So it wasn't an advantage or a disadvantage. Um, but I, I, I was very pleased when I became general manager in Tampa, one of the first things I did, I said, well, how do we travel? And a right. travel guy said, oh, you know, we use Miami Air. We have a travel service. I said, is there any way they bring the plane over so I could just see it? <laughs> we're, we're, we're in Tampa. So they flew over, which right. is very kind of them. And they said, oh, we'll take you up for a little flight. They flew okay. around Tampa and back down just to check it out. Obviously, it was incredible. It was magnificent. Right. It's everything that fans see. It, it, it was it. it it felt bizarre to me looking back at my career. And, Absolutely. You know, knowing so, what uh, it had been previously. So let's 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 go take the listeners. So you have your hockey career. Um, you played in multiple cities. Your career is ending up. Uh, I believe you're in San Jose when we first kind of met. Um, yeah. Early 1990, 91, and then 92. Um, the first memory I had of Brian Lawton was at the back of a room in the General Motors building in New York City. The players, I believe, had just gone on strike, um, and we were having a big players meeting, and from the back of the room, Brian Lawton is, stands up and says to Bob Goodnow, hey, Bob, can you do us all a favor and show passion and desire when you're talking about all these issues because they're really important to us we just lived through an era of no rights and we are taking a stand and you have our full support i mean i believe that was a seminal moment during the strike of, of 92 when uh guys like you and others um stood up and showed great solidarity um to help uh, the players advance their rights. Um, first memory, tell us a little bit about coming out of the 80s. I know there was a series before I arrived on the scene, a series of meetings in Florida um, led by other agents, Winter, Salser, and a couple other agents. Um, and then that's what brought on Bob Goodnow uh, to replace Eagleson. Tell us a little bit about the climate, like what guys were making in the late, 80s and what was going on yeah no all and all that's true and it was a different time and hockey players have it so much better off today i'm glad to say in all respects not just in how they travel but how they get paid and that's in large great part, in large part to thanks to players like you and others i mean i've had curvers Baumgartner, healy on the podcast all guys that took a stand for the current players um, so that they can enjoy all these great benefits. But go on. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I, I would say, um, first of all, I'm reasonably, even though I work on TV, I'm reasonably subdued or, you know, I'm not as obnoxious as you, as it may be found by your explanation there. But the fact of the matter is, is I believe well, in such... I didn't mean it to be obnoxious. No, no, you, 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 were, you weren't. But it was somewhat obnoxious in that I was not a big player. I'd been a player rep on uh, Hartford, Minnesota and San Jose. Right. So I was always interested in what the union was doing and players rights and things like that. That's just my nature. Uh, 
But in that particular meeting, there was a lot of our star players were in the room. Uh, the reason that I felt confident to speak up is because I learned from some really great guys. Guys like Rob Ramage was a great guy back then, but Brad McCrimmon yeah, was the, really a, the, the beast. Uh, God bless him. And Kelly's brother, of course, who's the general manager of the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, he was just a first class gentleman. I never played with him, but just the times I was around him and the way he thought, the sacrifices he made, it really was people like him, in my opinion, that players uh, owe a gratitude of debt to that stood up, that were at the end of their careers, that wanted to do the right thing for the players in the game. That's what resonated with me. Right. And that's what gave me the confidence, even as somebody that really shouldn't have had the confidence to speak up. And I remember the speech you referenced on Bob Goodnow. I hope Bob's listening, because even though I told him that day, I'll tell him again, he was absolutely terrible in his speech. He was a great leader. Bob was a very, very good leader. He had a natural set that was what was needed for the NHLPA at that oh, yeah. time. He, he absolutely was up for the fights and that was a part of his DNA, but uh, he was a great leader. But when he got in front of the camera, he was terrible. He was absolutely terrible. And I just remember watching him thinking, oh my God, this is our livelihood. Like we need Bob to put some oomph into it. This is important to us. You got guys back here like Brad McCrimmon and all the other players that were in the room. Doug Wilson was the president that are, you know, they recognize the gravity of the moment. And Bob didn't do it on purpose. He just, you know, he just wasn't really media savvy at that point. He was at just starting point. his career. Yeah. yeah. Right. And uh, that's all it was. That's right. all. It was, it wasn't really much, to be honest with you. You and I joke about that moment because we were sitting in the back of the room and uh, you and I are the same age and we we're getting to right. each other. And, uh, you know, it was important in our friendship and, I don't yeah, know. It was, hey, it was, it was a it, fun it, moment it, to be a part it, of. It didn't turn the strike, I'll tell you that. But no, no. I mean, just from a <laughs> listener perspective, it, it it goes to show you that rank and file members have a voice, have a say, can be heard. And Absolutely. I think that's important. And like Beast McCrimmon was never like Beast represented um the rank and file even though he was yep. a star in his own right an unassuming star you know yep. beast right you know he's missed um greatly and was a real leader there should be a nhl award for that for for uh beast um broad mccrimmon out there maybe for plus minus or whatever it is but yeah you know i, he, I agree i agree some of that history is lost yeah, you know, and, yeah. and for players, you hope you get that back. And to put it in perspective, um, I don't know. I, I I can't recall what the average salary was then. But it was about two hundred and seventy. Sure. I do. It was two hundred and seventy-one thousand dollars and ninety-two for an average yeah. league average salary. Right. Yeah. yeah no, I I was going to guess about two fifty. Yeah. That would have been my recollection. So I yes. Your number, yeah. So times have changed significantly. Players are the benefactors of that, and nobody's happier than me for today's players because I know what they go through, and that does help me do my job. There's days where, you know, we're critical of players at times, uh, but you try to do it in a respectful way, and in an understanding way that you know how hard the job is. And I hope that comes across when I'm doing that in my job for NHL Network because it is important to me. I am still friends with a lot of the guys. They treat me fantastic. I appreciate that. Uh, the hockey community is a great community to be a part of. So uh, your career winds down and you become an agent. Um, and, and my recollection, again, as a, as a trailblazer, uh, there weren't too many former players who were agents. There were a couple out there. Um, was um, maybe Tom Laidlaw. I don't know if he was in the business before or after you. Um, Tom, Tom, Tom was in the business before me. I feel like Jill's Lupian, maybe. Yeah, Jill, Jill's Lupian. I just, there was an article in the Gazette. He's not well. And um, I'm sorry I'm, to hear that. Yeah, Jill's was a trailblazer in Quebec, no doubt. Um, player's first guy, um, always yeah. fighting for the players. So Jill, Lupien, Tom Laidlaw, a couple others, but um, really, um, so what prompted you to be an agent and what did you like about being an agent? 
You know what? I really wanted to uh, help people through their careers. Having just gone through it, I just really felt like I could help young kids maybe be prepared for what the rigors of the NHL are. Uh, I had been a player rep, as I mentioned earlier, and I literally had like seven or eight players that wanted me to represent them or asked me, you know, they would come to me and say, hey, is there any way you could talk to the GM? And I'd be like, what are you, crazy? I'm well, on the same you were team. Playing. While I was playing. Right, right. Like, why, why would I go talk to the GM? I mean, I'm just as at risk as you are. I can't do that. But I always thought, you know what? But when I'm done, I might do that. And that's really where the idea came from. And then I was fortunate to have some people like Jeff Solomon, who's now, you know, the uh, basically the director for contracts and all things legal yeah. for the yeah. Los Angeles Kings, who was very helpful to me, along with a number of other people. Don Beasley was very helpful. Um, almost everybody was, to be honest with you. There were a few agents I competed with that weren't, but it was different back then. There was much less competition. The barrier to entry was very low. Um, you know, it was just the right time to do it. And I was really fortunate to start it at that time. Yeah. And what did you, so you liked helping guys, you liked the being on the pulse of things in the agency. Um, and, and, um, I like a good debate. So I didn't have any problem dealing with the general managers back then. Right. I quickly realized that, um, I started, you know, the first company I started was lot and sport and financial. I remember it. Yeah. Right. And that was just myself. And I had a couple people helping and things like that, but very small after about four, might've been four or five years, I sold that business to Octagon. And my prevailing thought at that time was Advantage first of all, or Octagon? It, it, it was actually Advantage at that yeah. time, but it very, very quickly right. thereafter became Octagon. Right. Yeah. I, right. I sold it to a company that is Octagon today called Advantage International. Yeah. Great group of guys. I had some very specific thoughts. I wanted to have a bigger team so I could withstand some of the poundings you'd get from GMs back then. Yeah. If you, if you didn't have a lot of clients, uh, they, they could work you over pretty good. I didn't like that. And I also thought that uh, having strength of players from all over the world was critical. So I sat down and took a look at where all the hockey players came from in the NHL, what regions were hot. And it wasn't rocket science, but I created plans as to how I would get people in those regions. Advantage came along and said, we'd like to buy your business. And I said, that's great. You can buy my business under one condition. You need to give me $10 million that I can spend however I see fit to build this business. And that's exactly what they did. And that was the reason why I sold it in the end. And that's really the genesis of how Octagon Hockey, which lives on today, was built. On a like in terms of plan. building, providing you resources to go out and acquire other agencies or, you know. Um, I, I had total free reign. If I wanted to do it organically and hire people in Finland or Czechoslovakia or Sweden or, you know, Western Canada or Quebec or whatever, I could do that. If I wanted to acquire people, I could do that as well. Advantage was awesome. Phil DeBiciato's still the president there. And he was great. He had complete trust in me. And that really is why I sold my business in the end. I believed him. And he followed through on that for the next, you know, 12, 13 years that I ran it and helped to basically create the plans to develop it into what it is today. And, and so what, based on your knowledge and your experience over the decades, for the listener who's thinking about becoming an agent in Dallas or Chicago or w anywhere in the world, what, what advice would you have for them? Uh, I'd say it's completely different from starting when I started. Back then, I'd say, you know what, if you're willing to put the work in, not make a lot of money, you can do it. I lost $30,000 my first year in business. I literally, it cost, I had to pay out $30,000 to be an agent sure. my first year. Yep. My, my second year, I might've made like 10 or 15 and then 150 and then 300 and it just kind of snowballed from there. But it, you know, I could afford to do that and it wasn't too penal. In today's world, it, it's really difficult for a young person to come along and start it themselves. So I think they need to find people like yourself uh, people like many of the other firms and hook up with one of them to get started, to learn the ropes, to maybe get paid a salary, 
that's a model that we eventually switched to at Octagon and brought a lot of agents up in that direction through that path. So that that would be more of a preferred route in today's environment. In my yeah, I, I would agree with that. Or, you know, getting involved in the uh, grassroots coaching, um, getting involved in analytics, getting involved in bringing something different to the table to an agency rather than just saying you love hockey. I think it's important to you know, hey, listen, people call me and I say, hey, if you're dialed in and you can bring A, B, and C to the table, you know, I'm all I'm all ears. But at the same time, you know, coaching, investing time, grinding it out, learning the business is is things that I would add on to what you just said. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I agree. And it's great to see where it's all come around uh, about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, a good friend of mine at Major League Baseball NHL Network, who I work, asked me if I would talk to this young woman that wanted to be either an agent or a general manager. I spent about an hour on the phone with this woman. Of course I did it. I'm always happy to help people like that. And uh, she had a passion for hockey. She grew up a Rangers fan. And I later would find out that I think her dad was married to Lady Gaga or something like that. I don't know. I didn't know any of this when I met her. It's a strange story. But in the end, she did have a real passion. It was just a matter of doing what you're suggesting, Ian, and that is to somehow get involved in the game. Right. It could be going, going to work for a team, even if it's in their business ops, whatever it is. You and I both know there's general managers in the NHL right now that started out in a different division of a hockey team. Big and, time. Guy, and guys that are really good, quite frankly, Doug Armstrong comes yep. to mind. He's an yep. excellent general manager. He knows the game as well as anybody. He's got a family history, too. So that's great stuff, in my opinion. Um, overall, in that particular case with that young woman, she's going to do something one day in the sport. I really, truly believe that. I can't wait to see what it ends up being. Right. Because I think yeah. it's going to be fascinating. All right, so you, you, you have great success in the agent world. You leave Octagon where it is, um, one of the leaders in, in, in the um, business, and you find your way to Tampa to be the GM of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, in your short time there, you were at the table when they called Steve Stamkos' name, um, involved there. Um, made a major, major decision in the drafting the next year of Victor Hedman. Could have maybe drafted Matt Duchesne or others, uh, Evander Kane, all great juniors at the time. You guys called the six foot seven giant Victor Hedman, who is now a Stanley Cup champion. Um, Stamkos, a Stanley Cup champion. Um, maybe three years was too short, but it was not, it wasn't short enough to leave a major stamp um, on the Tampa Bay Lightning to which Steve Eiserman took over and then passed the torch to Julian Brisbois. Um, what was like life like in the big chair in Tampa? Was it everything you thought it would be? And um, then what wasn't it? What was the frustrating part of it other than being probably too short? Yeah. Um... It was everything I thought I'd be. It would be. I totally enjoyed it. It was incredible. It was a great organization. It was a really tough time economically. Um, taking over a team that was dead last at the time. That's how we ended up with the Stamkos pick. Obviously, that was a challenge. I, I, I really, truly don't believe it takes five years to turn an organization around, but it doesn't take one either. And I didn't necessarily think we'd do it in one. I didn't even think we'd do it in two, but I felt confident by year three, the club would, if you could really truly outline the correct plan and stick to it, you could get there. And I believe that for any team today in the NHL, but you got to have the backing of ownership. I had that partially in Tampa Bay, certainly with Oren Kulis, who treated me fantastic. Um, we got that done. I was let go, but the club did finish eighth overall, Stevie's first year, and we're always proud of that. We think we had a big part of that, and there was a number of players that were part of that team. So that's a great feeling. Um, I was, I'm was i so pleased to see Tampa go on and have success. Steve Eiserman, he, he really, truly did an amazing job. He's the guy that deserves all the credit for that. Um, but we're still proud to have been involved with drafting sure. Stan Post and Hedman. 
that's still a, a part of their history and I'm proud to definitely be associated with it in that way. So uh, when I look back at it, great experience. I would love to do it again. Uh, we'll see if that happens or not. Um, I have interviewed for some jobs in the last few years and I think it's a matter of finding the right one. I wouldn't go back to just any team, but in the right situation, I would love to do it. And is the frustrating part, the uncertainty for all general managers, really whether ownership is going to stay as the owner and give them their full uh, backing? Or can you make all these grand plans and then give the players to a coach that may not utilize them correctly. Um, or finally you bring the players in and they don't live up to the expectations that you thought, what, what would be some of the frustrations to running a team B for the listeners um, uh, against, you know, yeah. What are some of the frustrations? Well, I, I think the biggest problem right now for organizations that are struggling in the NHL is, the way things are set up, you have to be empowered to make long-term decisions. If you don't have that, it's tough to cobble things together. You might rise up briefly, but it, I always wanted to build something that was sustainable long-term. It's not going to be forever in a salary cap era. We've seen that, although we did see Chicago, LA, and Pittsburgh win multiple cups, eight of them, over essentially a 10-year period. The world is still different from that, though, because all three of those teams were really built on the back of the draft. Nowadays, you've got to be able to understand every avenue that's available for you to build your team. You've got to be creative. It's what worked in the past doesn't work today. And I could say even to some degree that the Detroit Red Wings are going through that now. You know, they had a historically bad season a couple of years ago, but we changed the draft lottery. So you're not as assured right. you were in 2008 and nine, like right. the Bay Lightning were, you knew you were picking either first or second, essentially, if you were one of the worst teams in the league. Yeah. And Detroit didn't have that luck, so it's different. So now you got to have different strategies. But um, overall, you need the freedom to make long-term decisions. You need the trust from ownership to do what you need to do. There was one thing I never got done that I don't really speak about in Tampa that should have been done for that team. And that is very frustrating to me to this day, because I was in charge of that organization. It was my responsibility. And ultimately, I was prevented from doing it. And even though they won a Stanley Cup, it still altered the course of that franchise in a negative way. So to me, those things are important. Some of them are personal. We, we, we leave them be where they are. But uh, you got to have that trust and confidence of ownership to do it right. And more than anything, when I see organizations struggle, if you look at what happened with Florida last year, Florida, you know, had some good players, but perennially would come up short. They finally make a change of management. Billy Zito goes out and brings in some really nice hockey people, really great analytics person in Sonny Meta, makes a ton of great changes. And ownership allows him to do what he needed to do, which is the hardest thing for anyone to do in an organization. The hardest thing to do, believe it or not, is to evaluate your own players. Everybody is tied to somebody in an existing organization. That's what prevents a lot of these organizations that you see, like Buffalo, even New Jersey, where, you know, they're having five, six, seven, eight years of lack of success. You got to get fresh eyes in there. You got to get people that can cut the cord on certain players that maybe you've got a staff that he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. A lot of those players will never be what you need them to be to get a hit. Florida didn't have that problem. They brought in a guy like Carter Verhage, your guy, inserted him on the first line, um, made multiple changes, trades. Uh, they, they did an awesome job. That's what I think people need to recognize for any of the organizations out there that are a little bit stale. Fresh eyes is the key, in my opinion. Good stuff. Good stuff. And with your advice to aspiring management, young people, you know, graduating university be the same as what you just mentioned to um, the woman you talked to, the daughter of Lady Gaga's first husband or <laughs> if it was, if it was. Yeah. yeah, a lot of it was what you said earlier, though, Ian, try to figure out a way that you can add some value 
it doesn't have to be different, but it's always helpful if it's unique. You know, you have a law degree that that in itself, I used to tell people, say, 10 years ago, at least go out and do something that gives you an advantage against 50, 60, 70 percent of the market. Right. I still you got to do that in other ways. You can use analytics as a platform for that. You know, if that suits your eye, if that's the strength of yours math wise, then separate yourself that way. We were doing that stuff back in 2008 and nine. Yes, we were. The guy we, we were. Heard, Michael Peterson, is still there. He's amazing. I remember his first day of work like it was yesterday. He'd never worked for a hockey organization or any sports organization, as far as I could tell, but he was brilliant mathematically and he had a real passion to want to help people. And his first day after I met with him was literally to walk him down to the coach's office and say, meet your new best friends, coaches, Michael Peterson. Was and this pre Emmy con or post? Emmy uh, con was there as well, but Emmy wasn't working on analytics and that Emmy oh. was very helpful in finding and oh. working with Michael Peterson. Right. Okay. But, uh, Michael was a specialist that had some engineering skills that we coveted and uh, he's done incredible. He's carved an incredible career out for himself in Tampa Bay and he deserves all the credit for that. Um, but that was a way to differentiate yourself. And that's why he's having success. Young people need to look back at things like that and figure out how they can be unique, special or different. Take us to the NHL network. What I'm most curious about is what a day in the life of Brian Lawton, NHL Network. Um, um, what are you? You're not a host. You're an uh, expert analyst. You're an expert. I, I'm supposed to be an expert. Yes. You're an expert. And so, you know, I believe recently you worked 30 days in a row or give or take a couple days. Um, 26. 26 days in a row. Yes, it was a unique scheduling uh, flaw, but that's a lot of TV for anybody to do. So when you hunker down for a 26 day run, like, okay, um, so um, what time, what time do you leave the building? Let's start when you leave the building at the end of a, uh, at the end of a night, what's the shift? What time does it end? We'll get to your shift, but let's start there. A shift, depending on the show I'm on, could end uh, anytime in the evening. It could end after 1 a.m. It could end after midnight. It could end after 10. It could end after 8. It could end after 6. Okay, okay so when you when you end your shift, are you going um, straight back to your hotel? Do you grab a bite to eat? Um, are you a fan of eating late um, in the middle of your 28-day run, or do you just go – back to the hotel and end the day and then regroup for the next. I never eat late, to be honest with you. I always eat reasonably early. I'm a little bit strange in that I'll bring my own food because there's only certain food I eat. I believe food is medicine. Okay. <laughs> I think my wife's not listening. That's just what I live by. Um, so you're so not, you're not crushing in a, a slice of uh, pizza late night before you go back to the hotel. It absolutely, not late night, but it absolutely happens at the studio once in a while. It didn't, I don't think it happened once in the 26 days I worked because I just couldn't afford to do that. Right. You have high energy when you're doing it. It's a draining job. Yeah. It, it really is. The amount of research and work that in order to go on TV and not embarrass yourself, you need to put the work in. And I take that seriously because- it's, it's just a reflection of, of me and what I'm supposed to know about in this game. My job at NHL Network is it, it's wide and it covers a lot of different things, but ultimately I do the trade deadline for them. I do the UFA period for them. I do the NHL draft day one and day two. Day two is one of the hardest things you can do in hockey and television. Right. Day two of a draft which was eight hours last year for a virtual draft on air. Let me tell you, I felt like I got hit by a Mack truck at the end of the day. If not for Adnan Verk, Dave Reed, Jamie Hirsch, and EJ Heratic, um, it would have been catastrophic. Right. You know, we had a great team that day. But boy, that was a lot, a lot of work. Uh, the preparation that goes into that is, is all throughout the year, like I'm doing now for the draft, 
and then culminates with a hard push in like the last two and a half, three weeks. It's, it's incredibly taxing. But my job is to do that, to cover the NHL on a nightly basis. Um, I do appear on NHL now, which is the four to six o'clock show. I always tease EJ and Jackie Redmond who run that show that uh, I should have just taken theater in high school and not played hockey. Because sometimes you do a lot of juggling on that show. There's no hockey going on. You're on for two hours and it's, it's a grind, but you got to come prepared every day when you're on that show to give ideas, to work with the staff, uh, and mostly to be prepared to have fun because that right. is a really fun show. So, so just take us through like what time you get up every morning when you're in this, this work. Uh, for me, I wake up every day at the same time when you have kids, it, it seems to not matter in terms of time zone. But I basically wake up at about 6.15 every day. 6.15 out of bed. I'm not out of bed. I'll wake up. I might do something, get some water, stretch. In New York, I live in, I live in New York City, interestingly, okay. about two blocks from the GM building that you referenced in right. one of your Okay, right. Um, just off of Park Avenue. It's beautiful. I love it. Um, you go for a jog or you work out? When's your workout? I always work out, but what I normally do in the morning is I will wake up early, I will read some stories, and then I will put XM radio on. I listen to it every morning. Gord Stelic, Scotty Laughlin, who's whoever they have on. I love it. It's just a great way to recap the night before. Even though you've even though you even watch though I've watched the games, games, even though I've watched the games, I wake up and I listen to the recaps every morning. Okay. All right. after, after that, I will go eventually and I make my own food. Wow. Because I'm a freak about that. Got and it. I will turn NHL Network on and I will watch on the fly. Okay. Jamie Hirsch or whoever else is right. going to go. And then I will get another dose of what happened last night. And all of that is slightly tailored for the show that I'm on so that when I'm on the show and I need to remember who did what and how it happened. It's top of mind. How many go on? It's a key. And I, I have met with a lot of people like Alex Tangay when he came to NHL network, Tangs and I are buddies. And a lot of times, I don't know why I do it, but I'll go to lunch with them or dinner and I'll just sit down and say, Hey, here's a few things that may help you with this job. I'm not trying to overwhelm them. Uh, most of the guys are great. Um, you know, it's, these are just easy things to do for your job, to be prepared. After that, you'll get into the day's research. You do all that, eventually show up for your show. What about the workout? Oh, I always do a workout. What time? Week. After I've watched on the fly, I'll go do a workout. I'll listen to XM radio some more. Right. Um, I do a very specific workout. I will do something that encompasses five or six high-end sprints as hard as I can do. <laughs> I'm crazy. I use a, hot, a heart monitor. My heart rate has to get above 165. I'll do that five or six times um, over a 15 to 20 minute period. And, and do you have a playlist that you're listening to on this workout or you're listening to XM Radio NHL? Um, sometimes I'll listen to XM when I'm doing that. Sometimes I need a playlist just to get the body going. Got it. Make sure I can get maximum effort. Um, and then, then into the afternoon, do you have a pregame nap or is that out the door? No, no there's no pregame naps anymore. <laughs> uh, Wish there were pregame naps. There's no pregame nap. No pregame nap. What about um, when's your main meal of the day before you go to work or it's multiple? No, I'll, I'll eat. I usually fast overnight. So I usually try to eat my last meal, depending on shows, by between six and seven. And then I won't eat again the next day. I won't have breakfast till at least 10, 30 or 11. Okay. And then we eat one more time before you go into the, to work. Oh no, I'll, I'll eat lunch. I still eat three meals. They just happen in a shorter time, time period. And then, and then do you chase out a coffee or uh, during the day? Are you a coffee uh, guy? I started to do coffee about two years ago. I'd never done it. Wow. I do bulletproof coffee with a shot of MCT oil. It extends your fast and I can do that earlier than say 11 o'clock. 
And so you, do you brew your own coffee? I do. I make my own coffee. So you won't chase a Starbucks or anything like stuck, that? If I'm stuck, I will, but I, I really don't very often, no. If you had no, um, if diet was not an issue, like you could eat whatever you want, right? Like anything no. you want, like today, Brian Lawton, you could eat as much as you want. You won't put on any weight. It won't hurt your health. In New York City, is there a go-to or your kids come in and they're saying like, let's go, come on, dad, let's go. Is there a pizza joint, burger joint, or are you just like, I don't eat any of that stuff. You got to go on your own. No, I love pizza just like everybody else, but I don't eat as much pizza as I, as I did when I was an NHL player. Let's put it that way. So it just doesn't happen. For restaurants, there's so many great restaurants. I live, you know, essentially... 59th and Park, that area. There's a ton of them around there that I go to. If you were taking, if you were going to meet Gary Batman for a slice of pizza or a pizza joint in New York City, not fancy, just like, hey, meet me here. Where would it be? Is there a go-to? If there isn't, no. there isn't. Huh? No, there's no go-to for that. There just right. is. What about steak? If you wanted to go for a great steak, um, I like uh, BLT steak. Is good there's a ton of them yeah I, yeah I, 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 italian would be my top meal okay the scarpetta if you nailed me down on where would i go it'd probably be scarpetta okay italian it's a little bit Fair away enough. from my house but that that would be my go-to i also like uh serafina it's one block behind that's good um i'm a big nobu on 57th street okay I got tons of restaurants I go to around there, but um, it's harder to it's hard to eat super healthy in a lot of these restaurants. That's yeah. just strong. And what about so will you go into Central Park and go onto a field and start doing your sprints? Like, you know, uh, I would love to. Most of my sprints have to be with either on a bike or an elliptical. My knees are just so damaged that I can't run. Oh, okay. So, Fair enough. But I, I will literally get out because you're in the studio a lot. I try to get out every day and just get some fresh air. And it may be a walk across the park. I've got a good friend that owns a workout facility on the west side. I'm on the Upper East. I'll walk over there. It's a nice walk. It's just good to be outside. Who talks more, you or Kevin Weeks? Um, you can out talk each other without interruption, like go on to like a filibuster. Uh, Weeksy or you? Um, that's a good question. We both have been known to go on. <laughs> the difference is, is that Weeksy is much more articulate than I am and has a lot more meaningful things to say than I do. I love working with Kevin Weeks. Uh, he, he's good awesome luck. at his job and he's a fantastic human being. Right. And I didn't know Kevin real well before I went to NHL Network, but that's really one of the gems for me about working there. It's, it's all the people. Uh, but a guy like Kevin, I had only met briefly and never really was, you know, knew him well enough to form any opinions. Having worked with him now for five years, uh, this guy is excellent at his job. Uh, there's other things I like about him. He's an excellent human being, tremendous uh, presence on social media. For any young people out there that are looking, you know, how to do things in that respect, I would totally uh, follow Kevin. I think he does an awesome job. I have to hear it every day from my wife because she's in somewhat of the social media business and she lets me know how much of a great job Kevin does. So I'm 100% certain about that. And uh, Mike Rupp, Mike Johnson, uh, Scotty Stevens was there, another guy. The hosts that we have, Tony Luffman, Jameson Coyle, these guys are awesome. They make it fun along with the people that you don't see on camera. And that's why I've enjoyed working at NHL Network, really the people. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it anymore. It's hard work. It's tough for me to travel. You know, I live in Minnesota with my family. So now you're talking about another deal when I'm out in New York. It's not easy. No, it's not easy. It's it's not. Nothing. It's, it's, everything's a grind, especially if you want to be the best. Any part of this business, it's, it's a grind. And it just doesn't happen. This is five decades of knowledge that you're giving out now on, and, and it's still not easy and it, it'll never be easy. And that's the way it makes it better. Now let's wrap up this. 
Um, I have to say one thing on that. I'll never be the best in what I'm doing, but it's my goal every day to do as best as I can do. And I accept that I won't be the best. There's just so many people that are so great on TV. I have my, the knowledge portion is my strong part. Um, but yeah. I, I take pride in that and I understand it. Um, it doesn't bum me out that I'll never be the best on TV because I'm super competitive, but I do take incredible pride in how I show up every day. And that's important to me. That That's just a personal thing for me. I think for young people out there, Ian, though, just like you in the agent business, will you ever be the best agent ever? I don't know, but I know you'll do the best job that's humanly that's possible. That's right. You. I don't think there is a best of the best. Uh, no. There really isn't. It's doing the best you can. Right. right. It, it, it is definitely arbitrary. There's lots of media people I look up to, uh, some of them, you know, men and women that I think are incredible. Catherine Tapper I've worked with her. She's amazing. Uh, there's been tons of people. It's, it's fun to see people that are really great at their jobs. Right. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I guess uh, it is a little bit of a timely topic. Where are we going to see Brian Lawton next year um, with NHL Network? Um, the big announcement today, uh, uh, Gary and Bill have completed their TV package. Um by adding TNT to uh, ABC Disney. Um, I believe there's a CBS component maybe or an HBO. Um, what's going to happen with NHL Network and where are we going to see Brian Lawton next year, if you know, or where do you think you're going to be? Um, good question. I don't know the answer to that. This could be it. This could be the last time you see me. In theory, my contract is up like most of the people at NHL Network, their contracts are up at the end of June. That's a normal okay. year. That's when they ended. The future has not been decided on NHL Network, obviously. This new information will change things. I hope to have some confirmation in the next few weeks uh, as to whether or not I'll continue to do this. I certainly would like to. I enjoy it. It's up to people to decide if I'm good at it or not, but I do enjoy it. Good. So that's that's an unknown. I, I will say this. Uh, you got to congratulate Gary and Bill for getting done and everybody at the National Hockey League, what they did at this time through a pandemic, you know, to essentially uh, more than double the revenues. That's a big step forward for the NHL when you add up all the TV revenues that were over a billion dollars a year now. That's something I never could have imagined. Uh, 92. Not 92. I mean, the entire business was like 400 million at that. Oh point. my God. Yeah. Now the TV is over a billion dollars. That's incredible. It's going to bode well for the future. Um, Turner is interesting. I'm not an expert in this, these areas, but you know, they're treated because their channels are not straight sports channels. They have some advantages and things there. They did you know, do a huge deal with the NBA where, you know, if I'm not mistaken, the NBA network essentially went from where the NHL network is today down to Turner. Okay. When the NBA signed their deal with, Tur with Turner, they essentially took over the NBA network, which used to be broadcast out of MLB. NHL came in and replaced that. Is this going to happen in the future? And is, but is Turner down in Atlanta? Turner is in Atlanta, uh, yes. Right. Turner is in Atlanta. So. Maybe you and Charles Barkley will be sitting on the on the on analyzing some games. I interviewed Charles uh, in Boston at the finals. He flew in for Game Seven, so okay. we had we had him on before the game. He was great. He was great. The the NBA's done a really nice job of uh, making their shows kind of destination viewing you know, to get people to go there and watch those guys. It may not be um, a fan favorite game across the country, but I, I like what they've did, done. Are they, I don't know what's going to happen with NHL network, so I can't comment on that, but I do like what they did with the NBA network. That's Oh sure. yeah, no doubt. Uh, where, where can the listeners find you? Are you on Twitter or any social media? I think you mentioned I'm, you are. I'm on Twitter, Brian Lawton nine. Um, that's where I converse on a business respect with uh, fans. I am on Instagram, but it's not, uh, it's more personal stuff. Feel free to give me a follow there. It's, you know, it's the, that's more of a personal deal though. 
Well, listen, Brian, it was great having you on uh, the podcast. Uh, your experience is uh, unmatched in my mind. I mean, what you've accomplished in your career, um, player, uh, agent, um, broadcaster, GM, uh, advocate for the players. There, We didn't get into it, but there's a fantastic article in The Athletic uh, on Brian Lawton, uh, really not on Brian Lawton, more on um, a human interest uh, story on Mark Parrish and the role Brian Lawton played. Uh, Brian was Mark's agent and then um, uh, um, uh, associate on the Hockey Network and how he helped Mark. And I hope Mark's doing great. And He's there's doing- lots of other stories about Brian helping players Um always will be a player's first guy, whatever you do. And uh, once again, thanks a lot for your time. My pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me on.